This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today we're going to be doing a screencast on aortic dissection. This disease is very tricky to diagnose, and it's easy to miss. In fact, some would say that the standard of care is to miss this diagnosis on its first presentation. So today we'll be going through all the basics of this, including the right questions to ask, the history, physical, exam findings. We'll also be talking about any uh, imaging that you're going to have to do to diagnose this disease properly, and how to treat it and manage it. Now, today is the fourth anniversary of the EM Basic Podcast, so I just want to say thank you very much to everyone who has listened, supported, and given comments and feedback on the podcast as we've grown throughout the f- these first four years. I will say that I plan on continuing this for as long as I can, and I appreciate everyone who's helped, especially those who have contributed episodes, both uh, in the past and those who are pending publication. So thank you very much. So as always, I have to say that this podcast is represented through the Department of Department Defense, the U.S. Army, the Shawshank EM Residency Program. So let's talk about a few cases to help put this disease into context. First of all, you've got that 70-year-old male. He's got sudden onset of tearing chest pain, but his chest x-ray is normal. Can you exclude aortic dissection in this patient? Just keep that in the back of your mind for a second here. Your next patient is a 40-year-old male with STEMI. How concerned do you have to be, cons- uh, how worried do you have to be about aortic dissection in this patient? Next, you have an 82-year-old male who's got poorly controlled hypertension and a confirmed type A dissection. His blood pressure is 200 over 100, and you see that his baseline in the clinic is usually 180. First of all, how do you treat this patient, and how low do you push his blood pressure? Next, you've got a 70-year-old female with a strong suspicion for dissection, but her creatinine is 2.0, and your radiologist is not that excited about doing a CT with contrast on her. What are your other options? Next, you've got a 20-year-old male with chest pain. You've got a low suspicion for dissection. What about a D-dimer in this patient? So first, what we're going to do is we're going to review a few of the basics of aortic dissection, and then we're going to be doing some myth-busting about some common exam findings and some common data on these patients and whether this helps us or hurts us as far as making a diagnosis. So first of all, let's just do a quick uh, review of the anatomy of aortic dissection. So if you remember that the aorta has three layers to it, the intima, the media, and the adventitia. What happens with an aortic dissection is that you get a tear in the intima layer of the aorta, and this causes what's called an intimal flap. Basically, blood enters this area and creates a false lumen where there's blood or a blood clot, and the true lumen, which is what used to be uh, where the blood flow was before you had the dissection. So this dissection area weakens the the outer wall layers of the aorta and makes you prone to aortic rupture, which is obviously a very bad and catastrophic thing. So let's talk about some of the risk factors for aortic dissection. Uh, First of all, males are at higher risk uh, for aortic dissection than females in general, and almost everyone has at least some component of hypertension. Age is also a risk factor as well, as you'll see that the incidence of aortic dissection rises greatly starting at age 60 years old and keeps continuing as you get older. And like I said before, almost all patients have at least some level of hypertension. Uh, a AAA or an abdominal aortic aneurysm can also put you at risk for aortic dissection. Now, it's important here that you get the terminology correct because a dissection and an aneurysm are two different things, but they can coexist. So a dissection is where the inner layer of the aorta dissects away from the outer layers, whereas an aortic aneurysm is a ballooning of the aorta uh, to a bigger size than usual. The walls can be weakened from this as well. Uh, you can get aneurysms and dissections anywhere throughout the course of your aorta, 
However, the most common site for AAA, I think as we all know, is the infrarenal position just below the kidneys, and this usually happens in older patients. Finally, any genetic disease, any collagen tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan syndrome can put you at risk for an aortic dissection as well because of a general weakening of the aortic wall. A bicuspid aortic valve also puts you at risk for an aortic dissection, and this is where your, uh, your aortic valve only has two leaflets instead of three. And what happens here is that this causes an uneven jet of blood to come out of your aortic valve and that can hit your proximal aortic wall in an uneven manner, and over time, that can put you at risk for dissection. Also, we have to remember that any sort of procedure where we instrument the heart of the coronary anatomy can put us at risk for aortic dissection as well. It can put us at risk for a coronary artery dissection and also an aortic dissection anytime the patient has a procedure like an EP study or a cardiac catheterization, so be on the lookout for those. Also, any sort of strenuous activity that causes large swings in blood pressure and intensity, such as weightlifting, can put you at risk for an aortic dissection. And finally, any sort of stimulant drug, especially cocaine, methamphetamine, can put you at risk for aortic dissection because of the wide swings in blood pressure that it causes. And just like uh, Dave Chappelle here says, cocaine is a hell of a drug, so don't miss that as well. Now let's talk about some of the symptoms and the exam findings that you'll see for aortic dissection. Almost all these patients are going to have some degree of chest pain, back pain, um, or some sort of pain, although we'll see in a second that's not always the case. Then we will often describe it as the board's answer as ripping or tearing chest pain. However, we'll show you in a little bit that that's not always the case. Any chest pain that's associated with syncope also has to get your alarm bells raised for the possibility of aortic dissection, although pulmonary embolism can also cause syncope in the setting of chest pain as well. We'll also talk about the uh, blood pressure differences between your left and right arms. We kind of talk about it as a classic finding in aortic dissection, although it's not always the case. And finally, a widened metastime on the chest x-ray. Now, I just put this picture up to just kind of remind everyone of the anatomy of the aorta. So if you're driving here, I'm just going to describe this real quick. Just picture in your head the aorta as it starts in the heart and courses all the way down to the iliac arteries. Basically, I just put this up here to remind everyone that the aorta covers pretty much your entire body. So one of the things that you may see in patients with aortic dissection is that they'll have pain in one place and then like a weird neurological finding in a distal place. So they'll have chest pain, but they also have weakness in one of their legs. Uh, anytime that you have two different symptoms in two parts of your body, you need to think about the an aortic disease because the aorta is basically the only thing that connects to both of them. So let's do some myth busting. Let's talk about the uh, classic scenario of someone who says, Doc, I've got ripping, tearing chest pain. So how uh, good is that for diagnosing aortic dissection? Does everyone with aortic dissection describe it this way? Let's take a look. So this is the International Registry of Acute Aortic Dissection, or IRAD study. It was published back in JAMA back in 1992. And what this is, this is a large registry of hospitals that uh, do a lot of aortic dissection repairs and they looked at the symptoms and the lab and the uh, x-ray and radiology findings that patients presented with, with when they had their aortic dissections. Now this is not a perfect data set because it doesn't include every single person that presents to the emergency department with chest pain, so it doesn't include those that we missed and we know that aortic dissection has a very high misdiagnosis rate. But this is uh, some pretty good information to know. So what this study found, and I encourage you to read it online because it's available for free, I'll post in the show notes. So what the study found was that 73% of patients with aortic dissection had chest pain, which is pretty good until you consider that 27% of patients with aortic dissection didn't have any chest pain whatsoever. 
51% described the pain as tearing or ripping chest pain, meaning that 49% of patients did not follow that quote-unquote classic presentation of ripping or tearing chest pain. 64% of patients actually described their chest pain as sharp. And I think whenever we think of sharp chest pain, we tend to not think of uh, a more serious diagnosis like MI or dissection. We tend to think, ah, it's probably more, a little more musculoskeletal. But uh, this is showing you that you know patients with aortic dissection can also present with sharp chest pain. 90% of patients described it as the worst pain of their life. So that's 90%, but then again, 10% of patients with dissections did not describe this as the worst pain of their life. And finally, 6% of patients had painless aortic dissections. Now, how these patients were diagnosed is really kind of beyond me. Maybe they were looking for pulmonary embolism, they found a dissection instead. But, I mean, painless uh, aortic dissection is really just kind of unfair. I mean, you know, if you're diagnosing that, then you really get a gold star. So I just wanted to show you this to show you the wide variety of presentations that people have. Not everyone reads the textbook when it comes to aortic dissection. That's why it's so difficult to diagnose. So if we change that ripping, tearing chest pain to sharp, ripping, tearing chest pain, then you know what? That's, a, that's confirmed. That, that myth, myth quote-unquote, is true. Uh, but you have to have sharp to that. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that everyone with sharp chest pain needs to get a CAT scan to look for aortic dissection. I certainly would say that if anyone describes it as ripping or tearing chest pain, I CT almost all those patients because that's, you know, really kind of, what you have to do, and very few patients describe their chest pain like that, so I think it's that it's worth uh, doing the CAT scan in that situation. Now, if it's just sharp chest pain, or, or maybe the patient says, you know what, it radiates to my back a little bit, I don't, that in isolation does not make me super suspicious for aortic dissection. I'm not always going to CAT scan those patients, but certainly if they say ripping or tearing chest pain, I think you're somewhat obligated to test them for it at that point. What about pulse deficits? We always talk about uh, deficits between the right and the left side and the arms or legs as being uh, something you'll see in aortic dissection. So IRAD found that only 15% of patients who had pulse deficits uh, had an aortic dissection. Or, I'm sorry, only, only of all patients with aortic dissection, only 15% of these patients had pulse deficits. And when they say pulse deficits, they meant that you could actually palpate a difference in the strength uh, of the pulses between each side or one side was absent. So 15% uh, was the number here. So just as a reminder, the reason why this may be the case is that in order, and what I'm showing here is another diagram of thoracic aorta um, kind of compressed. And what I just want to remind people of is that the reason you see pulse deficits in, say, your arms is that the dissection flap has to include the left subclavian artery. So if the dissection flap is somewhere uh, not in that area, then you're not going to see a pulse deficit between the left and the right arms. So that's why it only, you're only going to see this in 15% of patients. Same goes for the legs. It has to include the iliac artery on that side if you're going to see a pulse deficit. So pulse deficits are kind of busted. They're rarely seen in patients of aortic dissection. So don't let the lack of a pulse deficit dissuade you from working up this deadly diagnosis. What about a wide mediastinum on chest x-ray? Because this is also the classic boards scenario uh, for aortic dissection. So this is about 60 to 70% sensitive, depending on the studies that you look at. So that doesn't seem to be too great for a um, really dangerous diagnosis, but let's talk about pretest probabilities. So let's say you have this patient who's at low risk. You think they're at low risk for aortic dissection. They don't really have any risk factors. Their pain isn't quite what you think of as an aortic dissection. They're not really writhing in bed. It doesn't seem like the worst pain in their life. So let's say you, you say to yourself, you know what, this person probably has like a 1% risk of dissection. 
So you take a test that's about 65% sensitive. We'll split the difference between 60 and 70%. And you apply it to a patient who has a 1% risk of disease. So now you're down to a 0.35% risk of disease, which is pretty darn good and probably something that you don't need to go working up anymore. Let's say you have a high-risk patient and then you think, you know what, there's probably about a 30 to higher percent risk that they have a dissection. And you apply a 65% sensitive test, they still have a risk of disease of 10.5%. So what this says for the chest x-ray is that it's good in those low-risk patients where we don't really think that they have an aortic dissection, you know, before they get uh, admitted for their uh, rule-out ACS. But in those high-risk patients, a negative chest x-ray should, once again, not dissuade you from pursuing this diagnosis. So why to be assigned on chest x-ray is plausible in the right patient. Now let's talk about imaging. So CTA uh, aorta has really uh, kind of revolutionized the diagnosis of this disease. It's fast, it's easily available. Uh, we can get it pretty quickly on just about any patient in the emergency department. And you'll see here on the CT that you can see an aortic dissection right here. The true lumen is the brighter one right here. The false lumen is, is the uh, darker one right here. And you can see that uh, well-demarcated line right here. And there's also some dilation here, suggestive of an aneurysm, along with that, this dissection. This patient needs rapid emergency treatment. Now, here you'll see the uh, sagittal reformats of the entire length of the aorta. You can see this patient has a dissection starting up here down the root and kind of going all the way down to just about their iliacs. So that's what we like about CT angiography for this diagnosis. That's easy to get, it's quick, and it provides a highly sensitive test for this deadly disease. However, what are you going to do when that patient has a creatinine at 2.5? You know, your radiologist is going to say, you know, I, I don't really want to give contrast to this person who has a creatinine at 2.5. You know, I'm concerned it'll cause renal failure. Now, just as a little aside, um, the whole thing about acute kidney injury uh, from contrast is really kind of taking a hammering recently in the literature. We just really don't think that it exists as much as anymore because we're using contrasts with either low or isoosmolar compared to the contrast before, which were high osmolar contrasts. And we're basically not seeing the rates of acute kidney injury that we used to see. So in the next couple of years, you really may see that uh, acute kidney injury from uh, contrast may kind of go away once the guidelines uh, catch up to them. We may be giving people with, with creatinines of 2.5 contrasts all the time. So this is just something to keep in mind. But here and now, you know, your radiologist is probably not going to want to scan someone with a creatinine 2.5. So how are you going to uh, take care of this patient? So there's a reason why I harp on this case in particular. Uh, it's because I had a case similar to this when I was a third-year medical student. So Scott Weingart for the MCRIT, MCRIT podcast has created Janus General Hospital, which is a uh, uh, kind of fake hospital that he made up to kind of set cases so that uh, patients wouldn't be uh, identifiable, uh, kind of a hospital in the cloud, if you will. So I've created my own hospital for this same case, and I call it Honey Badger General. And Honey Badger General, we don't care about your cough and cold, but Honey Badger General does care about your critical care. So with that in mind, let's talk about a patient that presented to Honey Badger General. Here's the case I had as a third-year medical student. I had a 28-year-old African-American male who had a sudden onset of severe, ripping, mid-thoracic back pain while he was at rest. When I saw him, he was on the cardiology floor and he was writhing in bed. His blood pressure was 220 over 110. He had no history of hypertension in the past. However, his creatinine was 1.9. So in the emergency department, he had a CT non-contrast, his chest, abdomen, pelvis, which was read negative, both retrospectively and after the fact. There was no signs of dissection on this non-contrast CT. So he was admitted to the cardiology service for further workup.
Now here's this hospital course. Now, for whatever reason, my attending did not think that the patient had an aortic dissection, despite the fact that I walked in his room and the very first thing I was concerned about was an aortic dissection. But given his creatinine, the radiologist didn't really want to give him contrast. So on day one, he had large doses of opioids with little pain relief. And throughout the weekend, because he was admitted on a Friday, he continued to have a very high opioid requirement for his pain. On Monday, he had a positive nuclear stress test which led to a cardiac catheterization the next day. We got a very urgent call from the cath lab saying that he had a type A dissection on his cardiac catheterization, and they, uh, they were unable to complete it due to the, that dissection that, that, that they diagnosed. So at this point, he did get a CT, and it showed a type A dissection from his aortic root down to his bilateral iliacs. The next day, he went to the operating room in a very difficult aortic graft in, uh, in the OR. And then for the next couple of weeks, he had very difficult to control blood pressure in the ICU. This led to him being hypertensive and then hypotensive. Eventually, this caused him to have a massive stroke, which led to him being declared brain dead at the age of 28. Now, we all have cases in our career that we wish had gone a little differently. This is definitely one of my cases. Now, granted, I was a third-year medical student, but something tells me, you know what, I really wish I had done something different or done something to encourage someone to work this guy up more aggressively. So let's talk about some other imaging modalities that you can use in patients who may have an elevated creatinine to make sure that you don't miss this diagnosis. So first of all, MRI. So this is a picture of a contrasted MRI that very clearly shows an aortic dissection in this patient. So the advantage of MRI is that you can usually get it in patients that have high creatinines. However, MRIs are very time consuming. Uh, it requires the uh, patient to lay still for an extended amount of time. It's also difficult to do this test in critically ill patients. If they're intubated or on a lot of monitors or lines, these can be difficult patients to get into the MRI scanner. There's also the standard MRI contraindications. If you've had a brain aneurysm clip or you have any sort of metal in your body uh, or anything else that they're worried that could be harmed uh, from the MRI machine. Finally, the patient has to be that has to be cooperative with you. Uncooperative patients cannot get MRIs. And the final question is, do you need to give these patients gadolinium, uh, which is a very important uh, question because of what this. And this is a patient that has nephrogenic sclerosing fibrosis. So this disease has only been really described in the past 8 to 10 years. And basically it's, for, it's in patients who are end-stage renal disease already on dialysis who get gadolinium, develop this inflammatory reaction that basically fibrosis their entire body. There's no known treatment or cure for this, and it's almost, as far as I can tell, almost uniformly fatal. So radiologists really do not want to give patients who are end-stage renal disease on dialysis gadolinium. If you do have to give these patients gadolinium, they have to have dialysis arranged immediately right after the MRI. So they should go right from the MRI scanner immediately to dialysis if the test is absolutely necessary. Now the question becomes, what about lesser stages of renal failure? And the current American College of Radiology guidelines say that you should not give gadolinium to anyone with a GFR less than 45. The European guidelines say a GFR less than 30. The American College of Radiology guidelines seem to be somewhat hedging a little bit by giving that higher GFR number. So radiologists in general are generally not excited about giving gadolinium for someone with any degree of renal failure. However, there is some evidence that in those patients who are getting MRIs uh, frequently to monitor the progression of a type B dissection, that a non-contrast MRI may be sufficient to show the dissection flap without using any contrast. But once again, there isn't a lot of evidence in patients who are undergoing 
acute diagnosis of their dissection, whether non-contrast MRIs will work. So MRIs could be a possibility, but possibly not. You have to talk with your radiologist. So what about cardiac catheterization? Here you'll see a cardiac cath that shows a true and a false lumen for a patient who has a dissection. So the problem with cardiac catheterization is you're still exposing the patient to some degree of contrast. It may be a little less than that of a CT uh, aorta. And the patient has to leave the emergency department. So that's not great either. The other thing is that the sensitivity of, of cardiac catheterization has come under fire as it being only about 70% sensitive for aortic dissection. So it may not be as sensitive as we want it to be. So transesophageal echo is another option. Now you'll see in this picture, you'll see the patient's left atrium, and then behind it, you'll see the patient's aorta, the true lumen, the false lumen, and the dissection flap right here. So TE could be a pretty good option for these patients. However, it all comes down to availability. You're gonna have to arrange someone who can do a TE to come to the emergency department to do this. Now the nice thing is that you can do this with usually just some mild procedural sedation, uh, however, you're going to have to get a cardiologist or possibly an anesthesiologist to come do a TEE in your emergency department. Now, transthoracic echoes are not really that sensitive. However, every once in a while, you may catch a dissection flap on a transthoracic echo. So it could be something that you could do while you're arranging your transesophageal echo to be done. Now, I at least have to mention a bedside ultrasound and the diagnosis of aortic dissection. So there have been some case reports of bedside ultrasound by emergency physicians to diagnose aortic dissection. This case diagnosed a type B dissection down in the abdominal area because they were able to see the flap on the bedside ultrasound when they were looking for some sort of aneurysm. You'll see this very clear line right here. The patient went to CAT scan expeditiously and was found to confirm that uh, dissection. So sometimes bedside ultrasound can show you this diagnosis, but you should not rely on a negative bedside ultrasound to show you a dissection because it'll often not be seen on a bedside ultrasound. Finally, you could also look at someone's thoracic arch with bedside ultrasound. You can see the proximal arch right here going around, and right here is where you see a dissection flap. Um, this is another technique that you can use. Basically, you take the probe and you point it down from the patient's suprasternal notch down towards their toes, and you try to image as much of their aortic arch as possible. Once again, this is not very sensitive, but it can be another data point if you're suspicious for it to get the patient uh, the imaging they need that much quicker if you're able to see a dissection flap. So let's talk about treatment of aortic dissections. So it's important that you know the classification of aortic dissections. So it used to be that we used the DeBakey classification, but that's really kind of gone by the wayside now that we have the Stanford classification. And the reason why is that the Stanford classification tells us what we need to do for the patient once we diagnose their dissection. So a type A dissection in the Stanford classification is any dissection that includes any portion of the aortic arch proximal to the left subclavian. So if it includes even a tiny bit of the aortic arch, it's a type A. If it doesn't include any part of the proximal aortic arch, then it's a type B dissection. Um, once again, any small portion of the aortic arch makes it a type A dissection by definition, whereas type Bs are more distal. And once again, the, the dividing line for this is the left subclavian artery. So why do we need to know this? So type A treatments are mostly surgical, whereas type B treatment is almost always medical in nature. So for type A dissections, these patients need to get to the operating room as quickly as possible with a cardiothoracic surgeon who's capable of repairing a type A dissection. Um, in a, you may even have to transfer these patients uh, uh, to another center if your center doesn't have cardiothoracic surgery. 
Type B dissections are mostly about blood pressure control, so you need to aggressively control their blood pressure. Now, in the meantime, before you get the patient to the OR, type A dissections are treated similarly as well with aggressive blood pressure control. So let's talk about how to accomplish this aggressive blood pressure control. So what I have here is a diagram of someone's aorta, and I've got you know, Super Mario here hitting it with a hammer. And so what I want you to think about is that every time your heart pumps blood, it's like a hammer on that aortic dissection flap. Every uh, pump of blood basically has the chance of expanding that dissection flap even further. So when we talk about double product control, what we're talking about is controlling both the patient's heart rate and the blood pressure. So they have fewer hammers to that dissection flap, and they also have less pressure behind each hammering of the dissection flap, if that makes sense. So once again, double product control is controlling both the heart rate and the blood pressure. So these are the patients that are going to get lots of drips. Uh, they're going to have their IV pole kind of full of these uh, drips to control their blood pressure. But first of all, before you do anything to control their blood pressure, any sort of vasoactive medicine, give them some pain control first. Giving the patient pain control aggressively will help lower their blood pressure much quicker than any sort of uh, vasoactive medicine you're going to give them. So this is a good patient for a medicine like fentanyl, which is quick on, quick off. Give the patient 75 to 100 micrograms of fentanyl titrated to pain relief. That will greatly help out their blood pressure and their heart rate. You could also consider a longer-acting medicine such as Dilaudid or morphine. Now, uh, everyone knows how much I love ketamine. Now, you know, everyone talks about how ketamine can raise the blood pressure a little bit. And in these patients, obviously, that's kind of what you're working against. I would argue that if you wanted to give patients a very small dose of ketamine for pain control, like 10 or 20 milligrams, that may help you reduce the number of opioids that you have to give down the road. And you're going to be giving these patients vasoactive medicines anyway. So even if they bump their blood pressure by a couple millimeters in the short term, if they get much better pain control over long term, that's going to help them out. So use your discretion here, but know that a very small dose of ketamine could help uh, could help these patients. Of course, I have no evidence basis for any of that ketamine, fentanyl, morphine, or otherwise. Just use your common sense when you're giving these patients pain control. So what about heart rate control? So Esmol is a drug that we really like because it's a pure beta blocker. It's easily to titrate, and it's very quick on, very quick off. So the loading dose on this is 500 mics per kilogram IV, or you could say 0.5 milligrams per kilogram IV as the loading dose. And then you titrate this up by 50 micrograms per kilogram per minute to a max of 200 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Now here's the important thing is that you have to rebolus this esmolol every time with that initial loading dose every time you go up on the medication because it's so short acting that you won't kind of get ahead of yourself. So every time you bump up the rate of that medicine, you have to take that initial loading dose and rebolus it. So for example, in a 70 kilogram male, 500 mics per kg or 0.5 milligrams per kilogram is going to be 35 milligrams IV. So you're going to rebolus that 35 milligrams every time you go up on the drip rate. And your goal is to get the patient's heart rate somewhere below 60 beats per minute. Now, another option that is a lot less nursing intensive than an esmolol drip, because an esmolol drip requires very uh, strict titration in order to get this effect, is labetalol. So for labetalol, you can give 20 milligrams IV as an initial dose, and then rebolus 20 to 80 milligrams every 10 minutes until you achieve your blood pressure goals. And labetalol is much longer acting. So basically what they recommend to do is that your initial bolus is 20 milligrams, your additional bolses can be 20 milligrams, and then 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 80 milligrams. 
and then you can start a drip at 0.5 to 2 milligrams per minute uh, on a drip. And once again, your goal heart rate is below 60 beats per minute. Now, uh, just something to mention, the, all these blood pressure medicines are something that we really don't use a lot. So it's always good to look this up uh, before you actually order this medication. Now, if you're still having trouble getting the patient's heart rate down, even after the labellol and liesmol, you can use nitroprusside if their blood pressure is still over 100. But make sure to wait until the heart rate is below 60 before you use nitroprusside. So as far as the dose of nitroprusside, I really encourage you to look this up. However, I will mention that it's 0.25 to 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute IV, and you want to avoid this in renal failure. Now, uh, a lot of one favorite of the internal our internal medicine colleagues is the medication hydralazine. So they say, let's give a dose of hydralazine, and I'm going to have Dr. Cox here explain what I think of that uh, idea. Wrong, 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 wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. So here's the problem with hydralazine. First of all, it's actually been shown to increase aortic root stress uh, directly. And the other problem with hydralazine is that patients have very wide responses to hydralazine. Some patients, you'll give them a little bit of hydralazine, they'll bottom their pressure out. Other patients will take these large doses before they really have any sort of effect on their blood pressure, and then they'll bottom their blood pressure out. So the thing is, is that we have much better drugs than hydralazine to treat aortic dissection. So I'd encourage you not to use hydralazine. In fact, I would say that hydralazine is what we call a dinosaur looking for a tar pit. It's basically a medicine that uh, used to be out there and used a lot, but really not used a lot anymore because we have much better medications. Some people may disagree with me on this. Um, as an aside, even in preeclampsia, they're not recommending uh, hydralazine anymore because they've, a meta-analysis showed that patients that got it had a worse outcomes than those that didn't. So it's really not recommended even in preeclampsia anymore. So just an FYI. So what about other blood pressure medicines? Uh, that you can use. So first of all, deltiazem or verapamil can be used for either heart rate or blood pressure control. And nicardibine or cardine is also good once you've achieved that heart rate control. So real quickly, because we use nicardipine a lot in the emergency department, I just want to talk about the dosing for nicardipine and how to effectively run a drip without bottoming someone's blood pressure out. So basically you want to start at five milligrams per hour on nicardipine uh, as a drip. And then what you're going to do is you're going to titrate up 2.5 milligrams an hour every 5 to 15 minutes until you reach your goal blood pressure. So let's say you start with a blood pressure of 220. You want to lower it to about 200 systolic. So you're going to start at 5 milligrams, and then you're going to go 7.5, and then maybe 10 milligrams. And let's say you hit your target at 10 milligrams. So you can't just walk away from the drip after that. And once you've been checking their blood pressures every couple minutes and you figure out your goal, you need to drop the drip to 3 milligrams per hour and then retitrate the patient up from there. So essentially what you're giving the patient is a loading dose. But if you keep them on that higher loading dose for a long period of time, they're just going to bottom out their blood pressure and they're not going to do well. So what about that patient with chronic hypertension? You do a chart biopsy, you look at back at their clinic notes, and their systolic blood pressure is never below 180 because they have such hard to control uh, hypertension. And you're saying you want to drop their systolic blood pressure to 100? Remember, we want their heart rate somewhere below 60 and their systolic blood pressure somewhere below 100. And now you want to take that patient who lives at 180 and drop them to 100? You know, isn't that a bad idea? Didn't you learn from the asymptomatic hypertension lecture that dropping someone's blood pressure that fast is a really bad idea? So aortic dissection is one of the only diseases where we're looking to dro drop someone's heart rate and blood pressure very fast. However, if the patient lives at 180, what you're going to do is titrate their blood pressure to their mental status. 
maybe the patient starts to become woozy and lightheaded at 140 systolic. And at that point, you're going to want to stop there and kind of reassess them and see if you need to be a little less uh, aggressive on their blood pressure control. So basically, push the patient down as far as their mental status will allow. You don't want them having an ischemic stroke because you push them too low. So just keep an eye on the patient. Finally, you also have to keep in mind that some patients are going to be hypotensive with their aortic dissection. In that case, you need to be suspicious for what's on the screen here, which is essentially a cardiac tamponade. So in those patients that are hypotensive with aortic dissection, it's possible that they've dissected into their pericardial sac and they're leaking blood into there. So in those patients, they may require an emergency pericardial synthesis to relieve that pressure and allow them to make it to the operating room for a repair. So what about D-dimer in these patients? So this was a systematic review snapshot in the Asylum Emergency Medicine in October 2011. And basically the bottom line is right here on the screen, there's not enough evidence to support the use of D-dimer to exclude acute aortic dissection in the emergency department. So what this came out of was that there was there were some studies that said, hey, we got a group of like 10 or 12 patients with aortic dissection. They happened to have D-dimers done and they were all positive. You know, could D-dimers be a good uh, marker uh, to help us rule out aortic dissection if it's negative. Because this makes sense. Uh, in aortic dissection, you are forming some sort of clot in there. So in theory, your D-dimer should be positive. The problem is, is that when this has been studied on a larger scale, unfortunately, it just hasn't panned out. There are way too many false positives with the D-dimers and also some false negatives as well. So unfortunately, we don't quite have the evidence base to say that we can use D-dimer to rule out aortic dissection in this day and age. So what about that 40-year-old male? He's got chest pain. His EKG looks like this. And if you're uh, not looking at the video, this is basically an uh, anterior septal STEMI, very obvious on the EKG. So in this patient, you know, how worried do we have to be about aortic dissection? And the answer from the IRET study is only about 0.1% of patients with an ST elevation MI turn out to have a dissection. Now, this means that you have to at least be aware that this can happen but also don't let it uh, really delay a patient's trip to a cath lab who really needs it. What I tell the residents is that when you have a patient with a STEMI, your job as the emergency medicine physician is to consider all the other diagnoses that this could be instead of a STEMI. Because once you pull that STEMI trigger and you have all these patient, people kind of rushing around and rushing the patient to get to the cath lab, you're going to be the only person who's going to take a second and think about the other things that this could be. So if a patient has obvious STEMI, but by their history, you're more concerned by dissection. You remember they said that they had like ripping or tearing chest pain, you notice a pulse deficit, you shoot a chest x-ray, you got a wide mediastinum, you know, you got, you're very suspicious of aortic dissection. You need to make sure to kind of uh, slam on the brakes a little bit and make sure this patient gets the right care. So in that situation, the patient still needs to go to the cath lab, but this is someone that you would talk to your cardiologist about and say, hey, listen, I'm really worried this patient is having a dissection. I'm not going to give them heparin right now, so can you please take them to the cardiac cath lab and shoot their arch first before you try going in there and trying to you know, fix a, st uh, fix a blockage that isn't really there. So this is a very rare complication of STEMI, aortic dissection, or rather STEMI is a very rare complication of aortic dissection, but it does exist. And in fact, the American actor John Ritter actually died after his aortic dissection was misdiagnosed as a STEMI. A chest x-ray was ordered, but it was never done, and he did get heparinized. Now, whether the heparin and, uh, actually was the thing that led to his death is kind of debatable. He may have had such severe disease that nothing was really going to be able to save him. But at the same time, if you have those patients that have a STEMI, just take a good history and make sure you're not suspicious for dissection. And if you are suspicious, tell your cardiologist. 
Before we wrap this up, I just want to talk about our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. So if you go to ebmedicine.net slash embasic, you'll be able to get free access uh, to all their content for any residents out there. And if you're attending that needs CME, you'll be able to get a great discount on all their great products. Their newest uh, thing that they have is an app, that uh, a mobile app that allows you to collate all their content on your phone, even if you don't have Wi-Fi access, so that you can always have access to all their great content on your mobile device. So once again, ebmedicine.net slash embasic. So let's go over some take-home messages from this talk. So first of all, the presentations of aortic dissection vary widely. The pulse deficits are not sensitive enough to rule out aortic dissection, but if you find them, they're another data point that can lead you in the right direction. Don't give up on the diagnosis if CT is not an option. Other options include transesophageal echo, MRI, and cardiac catheterization to diagnose aortic dissection. Once you find an aortic dissection, remember that type A's are surgical management and type B's are mostly medical management. However, they should both be transferred to a center that is capable of aortic dissection repair because if type B's get worse, they may go to the operating room for a repair. So in the meantime, what you're, the first thing you're going to do is pain control, very aggressive pain control to drop the basis, blood pressure, and heart rate. The next thing you want to do is either esmolol or labetalol to control the patient's heart rate before you try to control their blood pressure to prevent reflux tachycardia. If you use esmolol and labetalol and they're still not working, you can also use nitroprusside, diltiazem, or narcotipine. And finally, don't use hydralazine in these patients. It's not a great blood pressure medicine. If you have any questions, please give me an email, send me an email at steveandemmasic.org or also comment on the website. So until next time, just remember T-Rex hates CPR. And this is Steve Carroll for the Embasic Podcast, signing off.